Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. I have in my hands my grandfather's pocket watch. This is one of his prized possessions. And I remember the day he decided to pass it on to me, or really to my son, Seth. I am to keep it right now until Seth is ready to have it someday. It's a railroad watch given to his father. And as Grandpa spoke about the watch, I can recall his tired fingers. They operated with a deafness that can only come from familiarity. He wound the watch, and then he opened it to reveal the inner workings, taking gears and the twisting spring. There was a joy on his face as he showed me the heart of the watch and recalled the wonder that he felt sitting on his father's lap watching those gears turn many and many and many a year ago. It was a memory that age had not dimmed. That watch was a little anchor that held him into his childhood. Part of Grandpa was in the watch. It was a reminder to him of a moment of wonder he loved. Well, now I have the watch, and it sits on my desk at home. I don't use it to keep time. It's an automatic watch, and it requires regular winding. Or it's not an automatic, it's a mechanical watch, and requires regular winding. And as of yet, I've not gained the discipline to remember to keep the watch wound up. And when it is running under its own power, it tends to lose a minute or so every other day, and so it needs some adjustment. It's a lovely piece, but it's not how I want to keep time. I somehow will always doubt its accuracy. I would wonder if after a hundred years, because the watch is almost, I think actually it is a little bit more than a hundred years old, I might wonder if it's starting to lose a step. I wonder to myself, did I forget to wind it? Did I forget to adjust it last? It's a watch that's wonderful and good when I wind it up and good when I set it, but it's not a great way for me to measure time. But it is an excellent measure of a good day visiting my grandpa and a hard day for him deciding to finally pass on one of his strongest memories. This watch helps me to remember my grandfather. And we each need our own little pocket watches, little anchors that help us to remember who we are and the important moments of life. Today we are starting a new sermon series, and the title of the series is Gentle Among You, Sharing the Gospel and Ourselves. This is going to be a slow walk through Paul's first letter, the first letter he ever wrote, and it's the first letter to the Thessalonian church. See, the Thessalonians were a young group of Christians in Greece, in the area of Macedonia, and they were vibrant in their faith, but the non-Christians in their city did not like who these new Christians were. The non-Christians felt threatened by this new religion, and they tried to pressure these Christians into doubting and renouncing their faith. And Paul and his traveling companions, they were run out of town, and, and these Christians, these young Christians, were left to fend for themselves and thrive as their own, on their own as a church. And so now Paul writes to them, and he writes to celebrate their faith, and to encourage them, and he gives them a word about what it means to be a Christian among those who are hostile to the faith. It's tempting when non-Christians put pressure on you to give up, or to doubt your faith, or, or to return the pressure back at them. 
When they speak sharp words, it's tempting to throw sharp words back. But the strong, strong advice, the strongest advice I can see that's given about how to face those who oppose or accuse you comes from 1 Thessalonians 2.7. There, Paul reveals his missionary strategy, and he speaks of the apostles working among these new Christians, and he says, But we were gentle among you. His tactic to share the gospel with, with power among the Thessalonians was through gentleness. And gentleness is a powerful force. Do not overlook the power of gentleness. Being gentle among you is about thriving under hostility. Experiencing true strength, it's about experiencing true strength as opposed to getting your way by force. It's about understanding that gentleness is not weakness or frailty. And you are called to a gentle strength. Church, you are called to be gentle among them. Jesus has released us from weak selfishness, from frail belligerence, into vibrant life and gentleness. He did it with gentleness, with gentle strength, and invited you and me, the church, and our neighbors to embody what we are always meant to be. Our times have put a bit of pressure on us, and I invite you to find your response to that pressure in 1 Thessalonians over the next several weeks, that you would decide to be gentle among everyone. Now, Paul's first stop in equipping the Thessalonian church is to remind them of who they are, of what is true and real. This pocket watch is a little anchor to remind me of my grandpa. It's a, it's a, a little thing that reminds me of what was real and, and wonderful about that relationship. And Paul offers a word to the Thessalonians, a letter that they can go back to over and over to remember who they are in Christ, what is real. Paul wants the Thessalonians to be sure of what is real. Real, reality, truth. That is what we need if we're going to live effectively under the pressure of our times and if we're going to be successful in a gentle gospel ministry. So today, if you want to experience real faith, you need to do two things. Build your faith on a foundation of truth and then put that truth into action. That's what we're going to find as we read the beginning of this letter. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5a. And it goes like this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What is it that holds you together when you are under pressure? What carries you through when you have doubts? Christian, what makes you able to stand up when the people closest to you try to get you to second-guess your faith? You see, people today don't like it when someone is certain, when someone's a know-it-all. There's a little story here. It's a cute little story. Uh, it goes like this. Little Johnny's grandfather was something of a philosopher, and he never missed an opportunity to give out odd, 
odd bits of sage advice to his grandson. And one day he said, Yes, sirree, Johnny. Remember, fools are certain, but wise men hesitate. Uh, are you sure, Grandpa? asked Johnny. Yes, my boy, said the old man, laying his gnarled hand on the youth's head. I'm absolutely certain. Wait, what? He's certain? I thought you weren't supposed to be certain, and that's what our culture says today. Don't be certain about the truth. Don't be so sure that you know it all. And so we might even wonder if it's okay to say that we know what is true. You know what? It is okay. So if you want to experience real faith, build a foundation of truth. And that truth is found in God's word. And so let's talk about what's happening in the church of Thessalonica. Okay, so the Thessalonican church, they're under persecution. The Greeks and the Jews of the community are trying to get these former friends, former family members who lived an old life and are now something new, these bizarre Christians, to renounce this new fandangled faith. Now, Thessalonica, it's an old city, and it's an important city. It is the second largest city in all of Macedonia, and it sits at a crossroads of trade and culture. The most important road traveling from Rome to Asia crosses right through Thessalonica. It's called the Ignatian Way, and it also... The city of Thessalonica sits on the end of what's called the Thermaic Gulf. And so the city rests at the midpoint of the biggest road of travel, and it sits at the edge of an important harbor. It's a place where people go. It's a place where people rest. Later, Thessalonica and its history will be made the Roman capital of Macedonia. And in its history, Thessalonica backed the right men who tried to grab the throne of Rome for power. And because they backed the right guy, and, and that guy became emperor, they were rewarded with a special privilege of being called a free city. They could govern themselves with their own Greek constitution, and they held a special place of favor in Caesar's eyes. That's important to remember. You see, when we get to Acts chapter 17 and we read about Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians, we, we hear about him planning the church there. We hear about him preaching the word. And then after a while, things start to go bad. The people in the town are getting worried about their neighbors and friends who are becoming Christians. And to become a Christian at this time meant that you had to transform your whole life. Now, we say that today, but it meant something even more drastic then because everything in the ancient world was built around the worship of false gods. Whatever goods you produced were attached to a false god. Going shopping in the market required the worship of a false god. Everything required something to do with a false god. And now these Christians were removing themselves from this old way of life claiming there is only one true god. Their whole lives were being turned upside down. All through Paul's letters, you'll see a phrase over and over again. It's one we're very familiar with, Jesus is Lord. And this is a declaration about the authority and kingship of Jesus. But in Thessalonica and everywhere in Rome, uh, that where Rome had power, there was another phrase that was used, Caesar is Lord. Now, if you lived in Thessalonica, a city that enjoyed unique freedom and favor from Caesar, you might get a little worried if your neighbor starts rocking the boat. And that's just what happened. And I can hear the neighbors talking to the Christian. You know, this new faith you have, it's, it's kind of dangerous because Caesar's Lord. And if you make him mad, we're going to lose some of the special privilege and favor that we have. You're going to make life bad for all of us. You're, you're endangering us all. Can't you just keep quiet? You could hear them saying, well, what we're doing is working so well. Why are you changing everything now? Or you could hear the Thessalonians say to the Christians there, 
Boy, you're really narrow-minded. You're just worshiping one God. I can't believe you, you won't accept all these other opportunities and possibilities. And so the Greeks in Thessalonica made accusations against the church in Thessalonica. In Acts chapter 17, verses 6 and 7, we read about it. It says, And when they could not find them, meaning Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers from the, before the city authorities, and they were shouting, These men who have turned the whole world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. You can hear it there. They're afraid of losing their heritage and their history as a famous city favored by the Roman emperors. The whole world is being turned upside down for them. Do you feel the pressure that the church is feeling in Thessalonica? What would you do? I mean, Paul and Silas, they fled the city. They were gone. What would you do if you had to live with this amount of pressure? Would you be silent? Would you leave as well? Would you go back to who you were before? Or would you stay faithful to Christ? And that's why Paul is worried about this church. And so he sends Timothy to check on them. And when Timothy reports back to Paul, Paul is overjoyed to hear that the Thessalonian church, though beat up, is thriving. And so he writes a word to fortify them. And he reminds them of the foundation of truth that their faith is built on. And so that introduction that we read by Paul he wastes no words there, and, and God is not in the business of wasting words. And our text today that we've already read is full of truths. If you just go through that text, you'll, you'll see so many truths. And the first, the first truth I would point out to you is this one. You are not alone. It's right there in verse 1. Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians, and it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. You know, we often think of this letter as a letter of Paul, and it is a letter of Paul, but it's from three people. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And Paul does nothing to separate himself from those other two men. Most of the letters even written with the word we. In only a few places does Paul say I. It's a letter from three brothers in Christ to the Thessalonians. And they're saying, you are not alone. We are with you. And he wants them to know they're not alone. Because he says there, we are giving thanks constantly for you. We're remembering you in our prayers. And then later in 1 Thessalonians, it's uh, chapter 2, verse 14, Paul tells them that they're not alone in their suffering. He says in uh, verse 14 there, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. He says, you're not alone. You're not alone in your faith. Do not for one minute ever believe that you are alone in this world, especially as a Christian. You stand with a great fellowship of believers. Secondly, Paul writes and reminds them that you are the church. He says, to the church of Thessalonica. You know, the Greek word here for church is ekklesia which actually has some meaning to it that we would benefit from. The word ecclesia means the gathering of the citizens. So as he's writing to the Thessalonian church, he's saying to the, to the gathering of citizens in Thessalonica, he's saying you are citizens of something other than just the city. You're citizens of God's kingdom. And we hear that in Philippians 3.20 where he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we face pressure for our faith, when those we love second-guess our Christianity, when society tells us that we are old-fashioned, out-of-date, or restrictive, in those moments we are being challenged. And the challenge is, where is your citizenship? When people challenge us, they want to have our citizenship here on earth. 
of this world, but we have a citizenship of heaven. Are you a part of the ecclesia, the citizens of the gathering? Or are you part of the citizen of the times? James 1, 6 and 7 warns us about this. It uses a phrase, a double-minded person, or maybe we could read into here, dual citizenship. Text reads like this. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Talking about someone who asks in faith, but who doubts. He's he's on going one way and then another way. He's not sure which way is the best way. He's he's split over two different outcomes. And I think we could liken that to citizenship. It's dangerous when we are split when we split our citizenship between heaven and this world. Remember, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Third truth that Paul lays out is this you are in God the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. I emphasize the word in because this is the only place in Paul's letter where it truly says that we are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Gordon Fee takes the phrase to mean this, that both the source and the goal of the Christian life is found in Jesus and in the Father. Our source of faith is in Jesus, and our goal is being in the Father, to actually be with them, in relationship with Him. It's also a statement about security, that no matter what happens in this world, we are in the Father and in the Lord Jesus. It's a promise for safety. Not necessarily eternal security, but safety, no matter what happens. Fourth truth revealed in this passage is you have grace that produces peace. It's found in verse 1. Letters in Paul's time uh, that he's writing are often begin with a blessing at, at, the, at the start of the letter, and, and Paul hijacks that blessing to share and proclaim the gospel. Grace to you. So he says, grace to you and peace. And those are important words. That phrase, grace to you, he's saying, you, church, are the recipients of Grace. Grace has bought you, has saved you. You are transformed by grace. Uh, some translations of this little introduction, they just say grace and peace to you. And that's okay. But a better translation is grace to you and peace. And Paul is, say, Paul is writing and saying grace has been given to you and it has produced peace. Grace has got to come first and its product is peace. And peace for the Jewish sense is shalom. That is wholeness, being restored to the design of God. Uh, and that's how it's meant to be. And it's to be right relationship with God. So grace comes first. And then you have the right relationship. Fifth foundational truth that Paul writes into the beginning of this letter. He says, God is our God. And he emphasizes the word our. It's in verse 3. We go to God. We go. We thank our God for you. God is not distant. He's not other. But he's real and in a relationship with us. He's our God. Not far away, but close. The sixth truth is that you are loved by God. I, I know we talk about God's love all the time. Let me just say this. It's a little story. A certain medieval monk announced that he would preach next Sunday evening on the love of God. As the shadows fell and the light ceased to come in through the cathedral windows, the congregation gathered in the darkness of the altar, the monk lighted a candle. 
lit a candle, and carried it to the crucifix. First of all, he illuminated the crown of thorns, next the two wounded hands, and then the marks of the spear wound. In the hush that fell, he blew out the candle and left the chancel. There was nothing else to say. That is the love of God. The seventh truth that is in this passage about a foundation for us to stand on is, is such a powerful one. You are chosen by God. When we hear the word chosen, some of us start to think about whether or not we have a free choice to follow God or if he predestined some of us to follow him. Here in the Evangelical Friends Church, we believe that each person has a free will to choose or to reject God. And I find this to hold true as I read the Bible. Scripture after scripture invites us to follow Jesus. And scripture after scripture warn against falling away from faith. There is a free choice. And I also see that chosen is a word that always is used to describe a person after they've become a believer, never before. But if you would for a moment, think upon the word chosen a little differently. While we often sweat over whether or not we have the privilege to choose God, I'm not so sure we often think about how he has the right to choose us. And there is a heritage of God choosing his people in the Bible. Nehemiah 9.7 tells us this, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him up out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. God chose Abram, made him Abraham, and built a nation out of him. It was God's pleasure to choose him. Deuteronomy 4.37 says this, And because he, meaning God, loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you up out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. There is in that text there a sense of God choosing Israel yet again. God has a privilege and a love to choose his people, to choose us. I can remember as a young boy at school, I dreaded it whenever any situation arose where we had to choose teams. Alpha and Jim was the worst. I'm not athletic, and I never was a very competitive person, and so I was often passed over and chosen last or near last for the teams. I didn't like that because I, I took it to heart very personally that I was unwanted on the team. But God does not pass over you, and he doesn't pass over me. He chooses us. Can you hear in the word chosen these ideas that you are loved? that you are honored, that you are privileged, that you are given power, and that you are even given duty. The eighth and final truth I want to highlight today in our text is that you have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you might feel like this has not yet happened. You say, well, I haven't felt anything fantastic yet. But the Holy Spirit is at work around us in more ways than we can count. And I suspect that many of us would not recognize the Holy Spirit's presence until he is absent. Our text today ends with four terms that make up two truths about the foundation of the Thessalonican church. It says there in verse 5, the gospel came in, and here's those four terms, the gospel came in word, power, Holy Spirit, or spirit, and full conviction. But those four terms, four ideas, get boiled down into two thoughts. Paul is anchoring the Thessalonians in the memory of their conversion, and he's telling them, remember, I preached the word to you 
in power. And by the word power, he's actually saying the spirit. I preach the word to you by the power of the spirit. And he's saying, not only did you hear the word in the power of the spirit, but then you were fully convicted. You were convinced by the Holy Spirit and you received the gospel. Paul is reminding them of the spirit's presence in both the hearing and the receiving of the truth. Do not discount the word delivered to you and how God presses it into your heart. And so Paul lays a foundation of truth, encouraging the Thessalonians, but then he impresses upon them how important it is to act because of the truth. Because if you want to have real faith, it must be built on a foundation of truth. But then if you want to experience real faith, you've got to put that truth into action. And Paul is showing that action to the Thessalonians by highlighting his own actions. He's writing them a letter. He's saying, I'm, I'm writing this to you because I care about you. He's taking action. He shares with them his daily and continual actions. He says in verse 2 that we give thanks to God always for you. He says again in thir- verse 2, we mentioned you in our prayers. And then in verse 3, he says, we remember you before our God and Father. He says that, he says that he, Paul Silvanus and Timothy are constantly acting on behalf of the Thessalonians. So we know that you're under pressure. We know you're facing hardship in your city, and we are doing everything we can. We we sent Timothy to check on you. I'm writing this letter to you, and, and I'm giving thanks. I'm mentioning you in my prayers, and I'm remembering you before God all the time. And then Paul reminds the Thessalonians of how important their actions of faith are. And there's these three phrases I just want to highlight real quickly for you and get you to think about are these at work in our lives? And Paul says, we remember to God your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. So let's talk about that work of faith real quick. Work of faith. What a powerful phrase. What is it that motivates you to action? What motivates you to work? For some, they only do work because they're afraid of consequences. Well, if I don't work, I'll, I'll have hardship. If I, if I don't do the work, I'll get bad grades. If, if I don't work, well, I'll be homeless. Paul says, your work is motivated by faith. For some, the motivation for work is by money. I work to get paid, to make ends meet. But William Barclay asks this, is it enough for you that the work is given to you by God? Your faith should motivate your action. And Barclay follows up with the challenge, can we find glory in drudgery? Because sometimes as a Christian, we are called to work out our faith to do works because of our faith. And it's a chore, it's hard, it's a slog, especially when we are doubted all the time. And I find just a challenge in that phrase, can you find glory in the drudgery, remembering that what we are doing is because we're doing it because we are called by God to act. The second phrase, labor of love. Barclay again recalls this phrase and he talks about that labor of love and he tells a story about a missionary visiting a farmhouse and and meeting with the family and there was a girl there the whole visit who was diligently sewing by hand a dress. And it was a long visit and finally the missionary turned to the girl and said, do you ever get tired of that endless work, stitch after stitch after stitch making the dress? And, And she just smiled and said, of course not. This is my wedding dress. Labor, a task, is changed when we do it out of love. Are you doing your work for the Lord out of love or some other motivation? And the third thing he says is your steadfastness of hope. It's an act of endurance. And again, the question is challenged. What motivates you? 
reward right now, approval right now, or the hope of heaven. And that long endurance, that steadfastness comes when we put our hope in heaven, eternity. Paul wants these Thessalonians to live a powerful witness to the non-Christians around them. And to do this, they need a foundation of truth, and then they must put that truth into action. And so right now, some of you, as you're listening to this message, you need to get real with God. You want real faith, but you need to get real with God. Maybe you've built a poor foundation of truth, or maybe you know what the Bible says, but you never do what the Bible says. Will you take time right now to make your relationship with God real? For some of you, that would mean recommitting your life to Christ or making that first-time decision to follow Jesus. For some of you, that means confessing sin and starting afresh with God. You may need to invite him in to build a fresh foundation of truth, to take out old lies that you once believed and put in new truth. And for some of you, you may need to make a covenant with them that you will put your faith, that foundation, into action. Will you make your faith real today? Let us pray. God, help us today to build a foundation of truth in our lives. And today, Lord, there are those here that need to get real with you. They need to stop pretending and playing at Christianity and begin living by the blood of Jesus. And Lord, this world tells us its own version of what's real and true and good all the time. Help us to put what our world and culture says and, and put that down and to turn to your word for the truth that we need in our lives. Help us to be a people of action so that one day you can say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did well in your work of faith, your labor of love and steadfastness in hope. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.